Hey everybody, this is Chris. Welcome to the Landmark, episode 25 of Chris's on Infinite Earths here at the Chris and Reggie channel. You can find this program at chrisandreggie.com, chrisandreggie.podbean.com, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and everywhere else that I always uh, mention and mangle during this wildly meandering intro. Uh, now, this week we're going to be discussing a book that it probably long past due to uh, discuss here. It's a... Uh, if you're following along with the blog, chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, you'll know that uh, as of February 1st, 2019, the entire thing took a totally different direction. And uh, rather than discussing and reviewing a random DC comic every single day, it shifted to taking a look at a an individual chapter of Action Comics Weekly every single day, just to keep the daily thing going, but... Also, not taking me, you know, two to four hours a day worth of blogging time to actually get done. And uh, before we get too deep into this, I do want to apologize if my voice is a little bit raspy. Uh, this has been the first few weeks that my wife is back to school uh, teaching, and uh, it really never fails. Uh, the first few weeks, uh, there's always a little bit of sick in the air, and I... I'm afraid that I might have caught something, but uh, who knows? I, I've also been out in the heat a lot lately, so that might be uh, that might have something to do with it. But uh, we're going to talk about the all the reasons behind the uh, change in direction for the blog. I, I have talked about it in brief before, uh, just never really too in depth. And uh, as you might have become accustomed to on this program, I go pretty deep into depth on things and. Maybe to to my own detriment, but uh, we will press on, and we will discuss the reasons behind the shift from a random DC comic every single day to an individual chapter of Action Comics Weekly every single day right now. The quick and dirty is, uh, well, I returned to school. Uh, I'm a grad student working on my EDS in school psychology. I've said that a time or two before, but uh, we're going to really get into, into the weeds on... Uh, the decision behind that, as well as everything that led up to making that decision uh, today. Now, I graduated, as mentioned several times before, uh, in the spring of 2017, and I had fully intended to parlay immediately into the graduate program. Um, I stopped by to visit with a local school while I was still um, pre-graduation from uh, my undergrad, and uh, talked things out with them and got a uh, got a plan put in place to basically, like I was going to graduate the first or second week of May 2017, and then like right after Memorial Day, I was going to start my grad program because if you've ever returned to school after a long absence, even if it's just the absence of a summer vacation, you know, those two months off, it's really hard to get back into the swing of things. Um my first break from education was a decade, you know, it was over a decade, actually, and the idea of getting home from work, then cracking open a textbook and writing and having to, like, re-familiarize myself with MLA and APA and citations and all that sort of stuff was uh, a bit daunting, um, especially <laughs> you have things like like math, you have... Uh, uh, all the all the pre pre calc stuff you got to do, and then uh, 
my original roadmap uh, required finite math, which uh, was described to me by a by a uh, admissions counselor as calculus is a less attractive sibling with less personality, which, uh, yeah, finite math was not, not a fun class to take. So with all that said, I uh, really just didn't want to take too big a break between my undergrad and my postgrad uh, studies because just the very thought of getting back into the swing of things was uh, really, really daunting. And I knew that uh, with... The way I do things, I, I tend to overthink everything. I, I, I mean, as I'm speaking to you now, every word is going through my head several times over. Uh, just to make sure I'm saying the right thing. I, I second, third, and fourth guess uh, a lot of what I do. And so uh, with any kind of school assignment, um, they could be asking me to uh, bake an apple pie and I'm out in the backyard trying to plant an apple tree. You know, I, I always, I always overthink things and I, uh, that's something we'll probably touch on a little bit later on as well. But, uh, just knowing my personality and knowing, uh, my, uh, deficiencies in as far as being able just to easily move into another stage of, uh, of my, uh, professional or academic life or career, I knew that I had to act immediately, otherwise I was going to uh, to lose any kind of forward momentum I had. And as I'm talking to this fella, everything sounded great. Um, this was uh, originally for a master's program. It has since been uh, amended to being an EDS, uh, educational specialist. But this was, uh, it all sounded really great. It was like a year of classes and then a year of internship, probably where all the, you know, quote, real learning would be done because, you know, you can only learn so much from a textbook and from lectures. It's uh, in any sort of field, uh, be it academic or, uh, you know, career. It's when you learn something from a book or from a manual or just having somebody tell you what to do, it's never quite the same as doing it yourself. At least that's in, in my experience. So everything sounded great and I was ready to sign and then the other shoe dropped. Uh, the, uh, the, the counselor told me that, uh, that the nature of my degree required for all of my classes, except for maybe one or two, to be in person. And it makes sense. If you're going to uh, work toward counseling or interpersonal relationships, uh, it's probably best and most advantageous to do that in person. But here's the thing, up to that point, I had done about 90, maybe even more than 90% of my classes, uh, my undergrad was done online and at home on my own. And I, I kind of alluded to this during our discussion about Comic-Con several weeks ago, where I kind of let the crowds and just... Uh, being around that many people, I kind of let that get to me. Uh, it's probably no surprise, and I don't keep it much of a secret, but I, I do have some anxiety stuff that I deal with, and uh, and it has, you know, a time or two gotten the best of me, and that's probably, those are probably not stories I'm going to be sharing on the air. Uh, even my, you know, closest confidants, uh, I haven't told about that sort of stuff, but uh, I, I do deal with... Uh, I don't know if it's uh, mild agoraphobia or uh, 
Uh, or maybe just performance anxiety, social anxiety, one of those, or maybe all of those. I don't know, but uh, I mean, you can sit me behind a microphone in my little library <laughs> in the guest bedroom here, and I could talk for days, or put me in front of a group of people to speak, and I can do that as well. But it's just the interpersonal stuff, and I, I can understand and appreciate the irony of someone entering the psychology field who has trouble <laughs> with interpersonal relationships or interpersonal communication, but. Uh, it's just something that I struggle with, um, and it's not the sort of thing where I took a test on BuzzFeed that told me that I have such and such a malady. This is actually stuff that I've dealt with, and uh, we'll just leave it at that. But uh, So I heard that I'd have to do this all in person, except for a few research classes, which, you know, research is research. You can do that just about anywhere you have an internet connection or a library. But the other classes were all going to be in person, and I got cold feet. And uh, I figured, okay, you know what, I'm going to take the summer off, and we can revisit this in the fall. And dude understood. I, I didn't really explain the reasons why <laughs> I wanted to put it off, but uh, he, he, you know, he understood that I've been working on my undergrad for years, and it's nice to get a summer off, because... When you do do your classes online, um, you don't get a summer break. You know, unless you choose to have a summer break, but you don't need to take a summer break. Is the thing because classes are all, all you know twelve months. You know, I I do assignments on Christmas Day, on Thanksgiving. It doesn't matter about holidays when you're doing it online. You just work when you have the time to work. Uh, of course, there are deadlines you have to meet and all that stuff, but. They really don't take time off for holidays or or for vacations. So, anytime you want time off, you you need to like think ahead and just not take a class, you know, or not take, you know, or just take one class instead of two or three. It, it's you know, it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of self management, um, a lot of time management, and uh, it's a very interesting way to go about uh, getting your uh, degree. Fast forward about a month, I head to Indiana so I can uh, participate in my graduation. That's a story I told back in our uh, uh, Titans Young Justice Graduation Day episode uh, several months back, if you want to hear that story about uh, missing a connecting flight in Chicago and having to drive through uh, deepest, darkest Indiana to get my make my way to Fort Wayne. And if you've ever participated in a graduation, uh, you probably know that when you go up on stage for your diploma, it's usually just a blank piece of paper because they have to send you your diploma, usually with a uh, usually with a fee, because they haven't gotten enough of your money yet. So you have to pay for that degree that you've earned. Um, so mine had not arrived. Uh, it, it's uh, it was about two three weeks later, and I never got my diploma in the mail. So I called the university. I was just asking, you know, hey, where's my where's my degree? And I got the uh, the reply I was not expecting, which was, "Honey, you didn't graduate." And uh, you know, my jaw just about hit the floor. I didn't know what in the world was going on. I'd uh, I had met with everybody I needed to meet with. We went line through line, line by line through uh, my transcripts because. As I mentioned in that uh, graduation-themed episode, uh, I went to a satellite branch of a school in, based out of Indiana, 
and that satellite branch closed down just as I was graduating. So it was vital that, you know, all of our I's were crossed and T's were dotted before everything went down. I had to make sure that I had the right amount of credits and that I was um, eligible to graduate. And uh, I had talked it over with a few of the people there, and everything was fine. Uh, and I get this... Uh, I get this person on the other end of the phones telling me I didn't graduate because I was nine credits short. Nine credits is three classes. You Generally speaking, it's three classes. So I could not wrap my head around exactly what was going on. And uh, the thing of it was, was that uh, during my senior year, uh, I heard that the school was shutting down. And so I needed to up my credits. So what I did was I arranged with the school to take three classes, nine credits, at the community college level. So I could take the two classes I was working on at university level and the nine credits that I was working on at community college level and get enough credits to graduate. And it was okayed. I, you know, I ran through uh, all the transferability of those credits and was told that it wouldn't be a problem. And the cool thing about that is that uh, community college is a whole lot less expensive than university, as, you know, it's blatantly obvious. Um, And also, the classes I could take there could be basically anything I wanted. So I wound up taking just some very easy classes for me to collect credits. Uh, When you go to community college, they... Generally speaking, they're going to write out uh, what they call a roadmap. You know, it's going to be two years' worth of classes, and you're going to endeavor to get all those classes done in order to comfortably and uh, smoothly transfer into a four-year school uh, with two years already done at a quarter of the price. So... I was going for a Bachelor's of Science in Psychology, and they wrote me a roadmap. And uh, the thing when you're at community college, especially if you're doing it online and you're not, like, in their face all the time, you're not walking on campus, you're not dealing with admissions, you're not dealing with counselors, those roadmaps change a lot. Uh, So, you know, the 12 credits I took last semester, I might find out that those 12 credits that were all on my roadmap that only six of them are still on the roadmap because they changed it. So I took two classes that semester that they still count as credits, but they're not applicable toward the roadmap. So instead of being a, you know, a milestone course, they become an elective. And you do need electives, you do need humanities uh, to, to, you know, be a fully, you know, well-rounded student, but... When you're taking classes with the sole purpose of, uh, of filling in these blanks on your roadmap so you can smoothly transition into uh, the four-year university, to find out that those classes no longer counted, it kind of sucks. And uh, then, you know, it's right back to the drawing board and you got to figure out what to do. But uh, I'm really getting off, t- off track here, and uh, I'm sure that's a story I can tell another time anyway. So what I did my senior year as I took my, my capstone classes at university to close out my uh, to close out my undergrad career 
And at community college, I took like an introduction to Microsoft Word, introduction to Microsoft Excel, and Spanish 101, which uh, I made sure ahead of time that were all transferable at full credit, you know, so if I got three credits at the community college, I'd still get three credits at the university. And everything was signed off on and everything was cool. And so that's exactly what I did. But there was a little bit of a hang-up. They somehow never got those nine credits, even though I handed them my transcripts on more than one occasion. Uh, of course, things were kind of up in the air. The uh, the school, the satellite branch of the school was suddenly shutting down, so so things were a little bit wibbly-wobbly, and uh, understandably so, you know. Uh, of course, I was not very understanding at that time. <laughs> I was very, very annoyed uh, that, you know, I, I felt like I'd been jerked around. I felt like... Uh, you know, I'd been sold a bill of goods here, told that I'd graduated, went, you know, flew my family out to Indiana to to go to what I assumed to be a sham of a graduation since I was just told I didn't graduate. Got home, we threw a pretty big party, um, it had, you know, people out, and it was, uh, and to find out that it was all for nothing, I, ooh, I really lost my cool. So I asked this woman exactly what I could do to prove that I had the credits. And she said, honey, I don't know. And uh, it's basically all I needed to hear. So I hung up with her. I called the local school, uh, got an answering machine. I didn't leave a message um, at the prodding of my wife because that would have been very, very ugly. <laughs> Uh, I didn't, I didn't leave a message and I figured I would call back or better yet, I would go down and visit with the satellite school. And I turned to the wife and I said, I'm going to be sitting my fat ass on this guy's desk. And she knew exactly what that meant because it's something I had done before, uh, when I was far less fat, uh, <laughs> um, which is a story all on its own that I wasn't planning on sharing right now, but, uh, yeah, we're here, so why not? Um, I've talked many, many times about, uh, my extended bout of unemployment, uh, from 2008, 2009, and, uh, and it's weird that, uh, certain periods of your life really define your outlook on so many things, uh, and you don't realize it at the time, but, uh, during that time, I eventually got on unemployment, uh, insurance or unemployment, uh, payments there, where, I get a deposit of $240 a week, which was at the time, and still very well might be, the maximum in Arizona. And that is with the understanding that you're not going to have any taxes taken out. So if you do choose to have taxes taken out, it's even less than that. And uh, that was just a real rough thing to make work. But uh, they give you the option of doing a direct deposit into your own account or issuing you a debit card to where you can, you know, get it and withdraw the money as needed. And I figured the most responsible thing to do would be to get the new debit card because then I wouldn't be able to access the money. You know, I figured I would have to actually go to a certain bank to withdraw the money and it would keep it, you know, kind of out of sight, out of mind. I wouldn't have it there and it wouldn't always be in the back of my mind that, oh, I've got this extra... 
such and such amount of money. So the responsible thing for me to do is leave it sit, and I'd let it build up, and then I'd pull it out when it's time to pay bills. And I would generally go down to this other bank uh, twice a month. Um, I'd pull out $480 a time, and I'd pay some bills, and I'd get as much as, as much as I could get done with that money done. Thankfully, the wife was still working uh, and was bringing in a far better salary than I was. So uh, she was able to help, or she, I was actually I was able to help her because she was really just kicking ass and handling everything. So one of the days I went to withdraw the four hundred and eighty dollars, I went through the usual ATM machine deal and. Uh, the machine spit out $480, and before I could pull it out of the machine, it sucked it back in. And I checked, and I freaked out, I'm like, what's going on here? And I checked my balance, and it's zero, because it shows that it actually spit the money out, even though it didn't. And so I went home, I called the bank, told them exactly what happened, and was told, oh yeah, that happens sometimes. Uh, so what we'll do is we'll put the money back in your account. Uh, great. Cool. So the next day, boom, $480 back in my account. And so I could, I withdrew it. I paid the bills and everything was cool. Fast forward about a week and a half later. And I get like six letters in the mail saying that I'm overdrafting and that, uh, my checks are bouncing and, and I look at my, uh, I check my balance on that card, and I owe them, you know, 400, 480 bucks, 460 bucks, something like that. I didn't know what was going on. So I called the bank, and they told me that, uh, that they sent out a letter saying that the transfer was uh, just, it, they weren't supposed to do it, I guess. I don't, I don't know, remember the exact terminology they used, but, uh. The gist of it was, you know, that I was ripping them off. Uh, that I, you know, I tricked them into giving me an extra $480 or whatever it was. So, my happy ass goes down to the bank. The same bank with that machine that took the money. And I'm greeted there by a very, very friendly banker. And I, I say that uh, genuinely, not, not, not facetious in the slightest. This guy was very, very nice. Uh, I sat down, I told him exactly what happened... And he's like, oh, well, you know, well, let's see what we can do. We'll figure things out. Uh, he runs an audit on that machine, and uh, sure enough, it's $480 over what it's supposed to be. And I tell him exactly when I did the withdrawal. I believe it was a Friday evening, and he checks before and after I said I did it. And sure enough, it only became $480 heavy after my attempt at withdrawal. And so, he's like, oh, this is easy. Every, it's cut and dry, let's go get you your money. And then I told him about, you know, hey, I've been getting these bounced check fees now and all this stuff because the machine ate the money. And oh, he's like, oh, we'll see what we can figure out. It'd be, it, this, shouldn't be, uh, this shouldn't be too difficult. And so he calls his manager in, and she comes in and is told and tells me, uh, well, we can't be sure that's your money. And I'm like, okay, well, how can we go about proving that that's my money. I said, I, I said, this isn't like a, a carnival trick that I, I go from bank to bank and, and guess how much their, uh, their ATM machines are off on reconcilement. 
I, uh, if I, if that were my gig, then I wouldn't be worrying about 480 bucks. And, uh, she's like, well, we'll need to run this through regional or wherever. And it was a lot of upstream mumbo jumbo where they would have to touch base with such and such department and they'd have to audit this. And it was just a big rigmarole. And I was told that I'd hear back within 48 to 72 hours. And 48 to 72 hours later, I'm back in the bank and I'm told there's no new news. And, uh, basically not to expect any new news for a little while. And, uh, you know, 480 bucks doesn't sound like a lot of money. Uh, especially in the grand scheme of things. But when you're, when you, when ends aren't meeting as it is, and you're robbing Peter to pay Paul to, just to keep the lights on and just to keep the water flowing and uh, just to keep everything going, keep food coming in the house. You know, everything was a struggle. And when you're too proud and too stupid to ask for help uh, because I, I didn't like taking loans or anything like that, so I never asked anybody for, for help uh, in, in as far as helping me pay bills. Uh, I have a hard time even asking asking the wife back then to do that, but uh, uh, you, you 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 gain character in these moments, so you you learn exactly what you need to do to survive, I guess, and uh, you learn that uh, the price you put on pride is uh, <laughs> is often to your detriment. But uh, I went in time and time again asking for my money. And it even got to the point where they pulled the security ca- footage there. You know, they pulled the cameras. And you can see me. Well, I never saw the video, but I was told about the video. You can see me reach for the money, and the machine sucked the money back in. So they had it on tape. And uh, they still wouldn't give me the money. They still <laughs> couldn't be 100% sure. They had the security footage. They had the audits. And... Uh, it just went on and on and on. It, it, this this was going on for like three months. And uh, all the while, I'm juggling who I can pay pay my bills on. You know, which bills I can pay, I'm juggling it. And it just got to the point where I fell behind a little too far on the electricity. Uh, the electric bill out here in Arizona is kind of weird because... Uh, there are ways you can like moderate your uh, your power bill here. But I've never chosen to do that. I usually just pay what I owe when I owe it. So it's like in the summertime when it's 110, 120 degrees outside, the air conditioner is running a lot. So it's not unusual to have, you know, a $400 or $500 electric bill in the summertime. And then when you get to the winter and you'll have like a $70 electric bill. So it's very strange. So I'm playing catch up. On the summer, because this is the fall uh, This is probably Actually, I know exactly when it was This all probably started around Halloween So I was still trying to catch up on the summer bills For the electricity, and they just started piling up And you make whatever payment you can But, you know, these the, the companies are only going to be as patient as they can be And they were very patient I, I will definitely give them that uh, we go to just a couple days before Christmas is when this story, this bit of the story ends here. And I actually had a guy from the power company come out to shut us off. 
and I just got to the point where I was like, okay, I need to, I need to actually draw a line under this now. So I drove up to the bank. The guy was cool. He's like, I'll wait. You know, I, I said I had to run up to the bank just to make sure things were going. So please don't, you know, don't flip that switch yet. And he was very, very cool. And I went up to the bank, and I walked past everybody. I went to the manager, and I sat on her desk. I just sat there waiting for her, right on her desk. And uh, she came in, and she was rather shocked, as well as right, rightfully she she should have been. And I said, "We need to do something now. We need to. You need to either tell me that you're giving me my money back, or you need to tell me to get out and never come back." I said, we've been playing with this for months now. We need to draw a line under it. You need to tell me one way or another. I need a definitive yes or no. So either tell me that you're going to give me my money back or tell me that that money is gone, I will never see it again, and I'll go, and I will never come back to bother you. And she stood there, like, gobsmacked, and then she said... You'll have your money in an hour. And I was like, wow, okay, great. <laughs> you know, I was shocked. Because I really thought that was going to go another way. I really thought she was going to be like, get out, stay out. Uh, I'm going to escort you out. You know, get out. But uh, she said that I'd have the money within an hour. And uh, I did. I did. Uh, the, uh, the electric guy was very, very cool. Especially since it was so close to Christmas. And if I did get shut off, it was going to be really hard to get turned back on. Uh, you know, with Christmas being right there, so everything worked out okay, which at the end of the day is really all that mattered. Um, but I told that story so I can continue with this story with a, a little bit more context. So back to where we were, I was I was uh, going to go down to the school to find out whether or not I graduated, and I turned to the wife and said, I'm going to have to sit on this guy's desk in order to get an answer. Um, I go down there, and he's not there. Uh, there is a, uh, there are a couple of people there packing and getting stuff uh, set for the move, uh, and I'm told that he went to lunch and he'll be back in a few hours. And I told him, you know, tell him, you know, Christine is here, uh, was here, and uh, please don't go home until I come back because I will be back in a couple hours. And I drove down to the community college. I got some sealed. Um, a sealed official transcripts. Uh, if you've ever handled transcripts, they uh, they come in a sealed envelope, so you can't tamper with them. They go directly to whoever needs them, and they open it. You know, I, I so I have these sealed transcripts. I got like three or four copies. I'm like anybody at my university that needs these, I want them to have them. I don't want to have to deal with having them mailed. Um, so I went down to the school. I drove. Probably an hour there, an hour back, and when I got back, uh, the the guy was actually at the school, the, the guy I had to speak with. And I get there, and he had no idea what I was talking about. I told him, hey, I called the uh, main campus, was told I didn't graduate. And he's like, what? I'm like, you really didn't know? <laughs> I mean, I'm, you've got like five students left here at this, <laughs> at this location. You didn't know? Um, I hand him the transcripts. He's like, I don't think I need these. I'm like, well, I, I need you to have them, you know, just so I know I did everything I could. And uh, I, I needed to know how long I, it would take for me to know 
whether or not I graduated because I've got this graduate program, this post-grad program that I'd like to start as soon as possible. And I, you know, <laughs> I think I even got like a 48 to 72 hour window from him too. But uh, at, the, at the end of the day, it all worked out. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's the, that's the important thing. I've actually still got this guy's voicemail saved on my phone where he told me that I, that I did graduate. I, I didn't, I've never deleted that thing. <laughs> it's always, it's always been there just in case anything were to come back. Um, so we jump ahead, you know, a few weeks and I finally get my diploma in the mail and it's addressed to Chris Shaheen. Uh, my last name is Sheehan, S-H-E-E-H-A-N, and this was addressed to Chris S-H-A-H-E-E-N, Shaheen. And I was like, wow, this is just perfect, in it? You know, <laughs> my diploma's going to have the wrong name on it. Um, uh, fortunately, it was just a misspelling on the envelope, and uh, the degree is spelt properly, and everything was cool from there. And so nothing was holding me back from starting my graduate program. Except my anxiety. Uh, So August came, and I was already enrolled. I had everything set to go, and I just couldn't do it. Uh, Something just stopped me from doing it. I couldn't couldn't bring myself to actually go uh, to school. So I unenrolled and told them that... uh, you know, I had stuff going on and that I'd have to wait until the uh, winter term to start, which, uh, that was, it was such a disappointment. Um, not only to me, but, uh, I knew that the, uh, that my wife was very disappointed that I couldn't, uh, get this going. And that just broke my heart knowing that I was letting her down. I was letting myself down and, yeah, I'm not getting any younger. I, I wanted to have this degree done before I turned 40, which I would have had I started immediately. Uh, at this point, I, I won't be under 40. I, I'm gonna be. I'll be 40 in in four and a half months. So uh, that that's a, a big letdown. E- even if we move into that winter term, I still didn't go. Um, I, I actually didn't. I actually wasted. Two years, uh, just getting up the nerve to go, and that—that's one of my bigger problems. Is that I have a hard time committing to uh, life changes, I guess. And I mean, it took me—it took me over ten years to go back to school the first time. And I, I'm telling you, taking that break was the worst thing for me because. You know, we, we've we've talked about the quote-unquote new normal a time or two before on this program, and uh, it doesn't take long for a new normal to become the normal, you know, where it's just your life. And it's not that I wasn't... It's not like I was just sitting around letting time pass by. It's uh, those two years I was blogging every day still. I was uh, I was still doing the show, so I was still very, very... Busy with, you know, hobbies and pastimes and stuff like that. Maybe even a little too busy. Uh, (laughs) uh, Which, you know, kind of circles us back to where we started here. Um, I've said it before, and I'm sure I'll say it again. The blog may not look like much, but back in the day, it was a two to four hour a day 
investment in time. Um, and the show, uh, the shows take anywhere from 30 to 70 hours of research, writing, recording, editing. It's a, it's a pretty big undertaking. And, uh, and I hope this doesn't sound like I don't enjoy it because I, I absolutely love what uh, Reggie and I do. Uh, on the on the program uh the research is you know it's such a it's very satisfying to do uh, uh another thing that we've said another chestnut from the show is that we wanted to make a show that we'd want to listen to and that's what we did with uh the the cosmic treadmill it is just a uh, big time investment and so when rumblings of returning for my you know post grad degree would start up again at the house I had to try to figure out a way to make everything work. And, uh, you know, what do you prioritize? Uh, the blog has been around for a long time, but the show, I think, is more important to me as a creative outlet, um, an opportunity to reach a, a wider audience and share things that I'm passionate about, and even, as this show is uh, illustrated, share random bits and pieces from my life. So in order for this return to school to not be a, you know, self-fulfilling doomed prophecy, I needed to, uh, something, something was going to have to give. And that something turned out to be the blog. And I had initially planned on just calling it a day after the three-year anniversary on January 31st of this year. I was just going to say, you know, that's it for now, and uh, we'll be back whenever, <laughs> maybe, hopefully, I don't know. But part of me just really didn't want to let go. And, because uh, it's hard to let go of something that's been part of your life for such a long time. And it's something that, uh, it's something that was driven by willpower. Uh, I mean, it's not something that gets a whole lot of engagement, uh, or even, you know, Notoriety or anything like that This has been Through my will of not wanting To let something go And uh, and that made it Even harder to put a pin In it And so I had to figure out what to do In order to keep this thing going At the rate it's been going But at the same time Not take up such a big part of the day And uh, that's when The idea for Action Comics Weekly Hit me I figured I could do... There were six stories in every issue of Action Comics Weekly. I could do six days, one story apiece, and then at the end of the week, do a big wrap-up and do a compilation where folks can read the whole thing in one go if they, you know, if they don't visit every day and even vote on their favorite story. I thought that was a... I thought that was a, a good compromise where I could uh, let my... Guilt and anxiety-ridden uh, mind at ease uh, By actually still having some sort of a written output every single day While at the same time not uh, jeopardizing the rest of my day Or monopolizing, I should say uh, So much of my time during the day where I should be attending to Quote-unquote real-life stuff, school, work, stuff like that And so far it's uh, it's worked out um, I'm not spending nearly as much time uh, per day working on the blog. Uh, it has taken a rather sizable hit 
in uh, in views and reads and shares and uh, I mean the tiny footprint I had initially is even smaller now in in as far as uh, the blog is concerned, but it assuages my guilt in part. <laughs> there are some days where I feel like I'm not doing nearly enough. Uh, the Superman days in in particular. But uh, it's still allowing me to touch base on the blog, keep it going. It's still daily. It's still uh, it's over three and a half years every single day. So still got that going on. I can still do shows, and it's uh, it's worked out okay. And uh, I have since uh, dipped my toe back into school, obviously, and uh, even taken some classes in person, and they haven't been nearly as... Uh, as uh, intimidating as I thought they might be You know, things are always worse when you're thinking about it like at 2am <laughs> Laying in bed, trying to sleep uh, When when you get there in the light of day Or in the light of uh, evening It's, uh, you know, ev- everybody's a person And everybody's got their own kind of baggage And uh, everybody's nervous about stuff So it's not just me that was ang- anxious about about taking classes and stuff like that. Uh, everybody's got their stuff. But uh, with that all said, I would like to share with you the first issue of Action Comics Weekly that we discussed way back in February of this year. And uh, it's going to be a long one, folks. Action Comics Weekly number 601 from uh, Mike's Amazing World at DCIndexes.com gives this as an April 5th, 1988 release. We've got six stories. Green Lantern in dot 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 and The Pain Shall Leave My Heart. Wild Dog in Moral Stand Chapter 1 colon Point of Order. The Secret Six in Listening to the Mockingbird. Superman in Faster Than a Speeding Bullet. Dead Man in The Section Chief. And Black Hawk in Another Fine War. We have a whole lot of creators here. Written by Jim Owsley, Max Collins, Martin Pascal, Pasco, Roger Stern, Mike Barron, and Mike Grell. Pencils, Gil Kane, Terry Beatty, Dan Spiegel, Kurt Swan, Dan Jurgens, and Rick Burchett. Inks, John Nyberg, John Beatty, Tony DiZaniga, and Pablo Marcos. Letters, Albert de Guzman, Gaspar, Carrie Spiegel, Bill Oakley, and Steve Haney. Colors, Anthony Tolan, Michelle Wolfman, Carl Gafford, Tom Ziuko, and Liz Barube. Editors, Denny O'Neill, Mike Gold, Dick Giordano, Mike Carlin, and Barbara Randall. This one had a cover price of $1.50. Now, if you need to know, or you want to know, what Action Comics Weekly is, where it came from, why it existed, uh, Reggie and I did do a five-part series on... Hal Jordan's Action Comics, where we went through all of the Green Lantern uh, features throughout the entire run, and at the beginning of that, uh, we spent a quite a quite a bit of time breaking down exactly what made this viable and why DC actually was able to approach a weekly anthology book at this uh, at this point in time. And I was actually going to include some of that as a Cosmic Treadmill classic. But it was like 20 minutes long, and this uh, this episode's going to be long enough as it is. <laughs> I thought it would just be 
uh, fluffing it a bit too much to put another 20-minute soundbite in there. So I will link to those episodes. I think uh, those were all very, very fun episodes. Uh, Very proud of those episodes. So definitely uh, check those out if you do have the time and or interest. Uh, Let's open with Green Lantern here. Now, we open with the Star Sapphire having a space battle with a uh, rather goofy-looking construct of Hal Jordan. She laments the fact that she had once loved him, but now only hate remains. You see, she blames him for the fact that her people, the Star Sapphires, the Zamorans, have vanished, and she's going to eventually want to get her pound of flesh out of him. Meanwhile, on Earth, Hal and his, uh... Barely legal underage girlfriend Aresia are couching it at John and Katma's place. And it looks like this uh, living arrangement might be a little bit too close for comfort for the Stewarts. Hal complains that he's broke. You know, what else is new? And so John suggests he... Get this. He, he suggests that Hal go and rob a South African diamond mine. Uh, not a joke here. He actually suggests he go steal diamonds from a mine. Uh, at the same time, Katma is reaming out Aresia for hogging the shower, so yeah, things are a little too close for comfort. John ensures Hal that the African mine is closed down, so uh, if he were to go and steal some diamonds, it would more be a case of finders keepers instead of actually, you know, thieving. And so, our man is Africa bound. We jump ahead one page, and he's there picking up diamonds and getting shot at. He uses his ring to disarm the soldiers, and he asks himself why he doesn't feel all that bad about breaking the law. Back in the city, Star Sapphire pays the Stewart Department a visit and... kills Cat Matui. They're really not messing around here. Uh, this is a, uh, a brutal... Uh, no, it's not, not so much a brutal death scene, but the, the, the actual post-death scene is, is kind of gory. Uh, we wrap up this chapter with Hal returning to the pad only to find John Stewart hunched over the body of his now dead wife. Naturally, John blames Hal, probably because Star Sapphire said that uh, this was a message for Hal. So, who else is he going to blame it on? And uh, we're going to take the uh, little analysis of these uh, chapters as they come here, instead of me trying to remember <laughs> at the very end here. Uh, now, this chapter really uh, hits the ground running for Action Comics Weekly here. Uh, it's established here right out the gate that we are playing for keeps, regardless of all the weird editorial stuff that happens much later on. Uh, the Green Lantern feature is the headliner, you know, of the uh, first two-thirds of this Action Comics Weekly run. And straight away we can see that this is going to be uh, a very important chapter for Hal Jordan lore, or at least it was intended to be at the time. Now in the lead-up to this... Uh, and this is something that Reggie and I did talk about at length during those uh, those Green Lantern Action Comics Weekly episodes. Uh, there was a trial of Sinestro in the Green Lantern core title, which is the precursor to this. Um, and, and during this, uh, the you know the core is wiped out, the Star Sapphires are gone. It it, it really clears up why uh, Star Sapphire is in a not so good mood and why she acted out the way she did. It's a uh, it's a pretty good read up until that last issue. Now, all told, this is a chapter that would make fans of Green Lantern stand up and take notice. Katma's death is one that would actually stick for a very long time. This is actually one of the very, very few bits of Lantern-flavored Action Comics Weekly legacy that would make its way through this run. 
I think people generally write this off as, uh, you know, being like a shock ending just for the sake of being a shock ending. And they're not wrong. Um, they're not wrong. This is uh, very much a statement, I think, a statement uh, cliffhanger to let us know that these stories are going to matter in the grand scheme of things. Uh, that said, I, I enjoy it. I enjoyed the fact that that this was made, it was made clear right out the gate that this was going to be the continuation of Hal Jordan's stories and not just some sort of thing on the side, you know? They were taking Action Comics Weekly seriously and uh, earnestly, which, uh, you know, I, I'm, as a guy who is a fan of Everything Matters, you know, the, that really, uh, it scratches me where I itch, so. Not a bad start for Action Comics Weekly. But next we jump into the Wild Dog feature. And here we open during a Davenport City Council meeting where a member of the Committee for Social Change has taken over the proceedings. He is demanding that Wild Dog be handed over to him for his crimes against their organization. Otherwise, he's going to start putting holes in members of the board. The Quad Cities Police Forces already has the place surrounded. Back inside, the CSC spokesman continues to rant, and he gives Wild Dog 30 minutes to appear, otherwise innocent blood is going to be on his hands. Reporter Susan King, who is just a wonderfully weird character, uh, she's on hand to cover the meeting, and she's not quite sure how they're going to get out of this one. Well, just so happens that at that very moment, a maintenance man enters City Hall. After bumping into a civil servant, he ducks away into a closet where we learn that he is, in fact, Wild Dog. Meanwhile, the police put their heads together to, uh, over how to handle this present crisis. Lieutenant Flint suggests that maybe they just dress a dude up like Wild Dog. After all, his costume is pretty easy to replicate. And, uh, yeah, Andy ain't wrong, is he? Point is, however, moot, because Wild Dog's already locked and loaded, and he approaches the chambers and proceeds to blow the CSC goons away. If you've never read a Wild Dog story before, I really recommend you do, because this is... It's a little shocking in how violent it is, especially for the time, and especially coming from uh, D.C. Now we wrap up this chapter with Quad City's finest rushing into the chambers to discover the wake of Wild Dog's latest endeavor. However, the man himself is nowhere to be found. Yeah, this one's a lot of fun. I, I have I always have a lot of fun with Wild Dog. Um, and and I've, I've mentioned before on the uh, on the blog and maybe on the show, I don't recall, but uh, I think that Wild Dog gets dismissed too uh, too easy as a as a funny haha type of character, like like the Mort of the Month and Wizard sort of deal. Like, oh this guy's a joke, he's he's Stupid, but he's so he's so stupid that he's awesome, sort of thing. I, that, that thing, kind of that kind of humor that I just don't dig. But uh, you know, this is it's a lot of fun. And actually, coming after the the Green Lantern chapter, it serves as a little bit of a palate cleanser. You know, I think the uh, I think the 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 Jordan feature was uh, very very severe, where this one's more, even though. It's a hail of bullets. It's it's kind of lighthearted in a way. It's more popcorn than drama, and I really feel like the anthology format might be the perfect format for Wild Dog. Uh, as much as I loved the miniseries, unironically, I thought it was very good. I, I again, you know, he's usually written off as a funny haha or so bad it's good sort of a thing, but I, I think it was a lot of fun. It was a definitely action movie popcorn type of deal. 
which might sound weird from coming from someone who doesn't watch movies to <laughs> refer to it as such, but uh, I, you know, I think if you were trying to do a full-length series with Wild Dog, it would run its course pretty quickly. Whereas if you're doing it in seven to eight page chunks, like we are here, I think it works a lot better. As far as the story is concerned, we are introduced here to the threat of the so-called Committee for Social Change, and uh, they are very much at odds with our lead character. We get to see the thorn in our thorn in the side reporter Susan King. She gets some panel time, which is always welcome, if you ask me. We also get the Quad Cities PD. We're basically laying a foundation here, and uh, I think that's a really, really key way to do an introductory chapter because. I mean, this is Action Comics, not a Wild Dog miniseries. So you got to assume that people reading this or picking it up out of habit or picking it up out of curiosity may not know a whole lot about Wild Dog. So this really does a good job of getting everybody up up to speed without beating you over the head with everything that went on beforehand. I mean, you know, you know that Jack, or I don't even know if they mention his name is Jack in this, but you know who Wild Dog is, you know what he is, and you see just how... Uh, how ultra-violent he can be to, uh, you know, in the name of uh, justice. It's, uh, again, a really good palate cleanser after the very heavy Green Lantern chapter. Um, and, and I quite enjoyed it. Now, let's move to something that I don't recall enjoying as, quite as much, and that is the Secret Six feature. This series and story opens in Orsonville, where there's quite the heavy acid rainstorm going on. It's literally melting the flesh off of all the citizens. And, you know, growing up in the 80s and 90s, acid rain is one of those things that I thought was going to impact my life in, in a very profound way. You know, like when you're a kid and you see, and you think about things like quicksand, and you think that quicksand is going to be something you're going to have to dodge your entire life. You know, quicksand and acid rain were about level. In my uh, in my experience, I always thought that I would probably meet my end via one or the other. Uh, anywho, we get a shot of the Technodyne plant, which may or may not have anything to do with anything, but almost certainly does. From here, we shift scenes to this odd woodland mansion called the Enchanted Forest, where a fellow who looks a lot like Bert Convy tells all the patrons that they're going to be closed the following night in order to hold a private party. After making the announcement, he follows up with a couple of fellas, uh, including original Secret Six member Carlo Dorenzi, regarding some RSVPs. And so, we're about to meet some of the invitees. We start with Mr. King Savage, who is another original member of the Secret Six. They're, they're all going to be the members of the original Secret Six, by the way, so no surprises there. Next, we meet Lily Denouave, or Neve. She's an of course, a former member and an aged French film star. Next up is Crimson Dawn, and uh, I'm not talking about that weird red mark that Psylocke had show up over her eye in the late 90s. This is just another Secret Six veteran. Uh, her real name is Kit Dawn Langman, and she is a model. Then we meet Tiger Force. He's a beat-up old boxer who appears to have trouble even signing his name, though he does tell a fan that he's going to write a book one of these days. We jump off to August Durant, a former physicist, now an old man reliant on pills to stay alive. He quarrels with an older woman, maybe his wife, I don't know, before getting into a car. Back at the Enchanted Castle, Bert Convy, looking dude, who's actually a fellow named Raphael. 
He's pleased to hear that the gang's all RSVP'd and on their way. And uh, hopefully he thinks that this might draw the mysterious Mockingbird out of the shadows as well. He actually draws a picture that, if you hold it one way, it looks like a bunny. If you hold it another way, it kind of looks like a bird. I don't know. I'm sure it's supposed to be a bird, considering he did talk about Mockingbird. Now we shift scenes to San Francisco, where a man is arriving for a job interview. It's 10 o'clock at night, so he's uh, more than a bit suspicious. He's also blind. Upon arrival, he meets five other people, including a woman who appears to be in a hockey mask. Nobody mentions that it's weird that she's wearing a hockey mask, but what are you going to do? It's quickly established here that each of these folks has a disability. The one we followed in is blind. Another guy is deaf. There's one in a wheelchair, and uh, as mentioned, one's wearing a hockey mask. They were all called here by someone calling themselves Mr. Bird. Hmm. And none of them seem to be all that pleased to be there. Uh, In fact, a fight breaks out between them straight away. They are then interrupted by a video monitor, and it's Mockingbird looking a lot like Cobra Commander. He offers them each a new life they've never dreamed possible, so long as they agree to be his all-new Secret Six. We wrap up this chapter with a mention of an entire city having been wiped out. Uh, We're going to assume that that has something to do with that acid rain. Now, it's funny. If uh, you're following along on the blog, uh, you'll know that uh, we're just about done with the Secret Six feature. And so much of what I'm reading here, it's been, I haven't revisited uh, this first chapter since doing it uh, back in February. Now, with all that I do know and all that we know, reading through most of this, uh, this feature, so much of this makes sense. You know, uh, so many of these questions we have here are answered, which is cool and rewarding and satisfying. But if I were to, you know, if I were just to go back to February, the first time I experienced this, and and I've tried reading this before. I've tried reading the entirety of Action Comics Weekly before. I've just never been able to keep up with it because so many of the stories were a drag, you know? And this was one of them because I didn't know anything about these characters. Uh, you got to look at the Secret Six as a property. This is pre Gail Simone. This is pre, you know, uh, sort of the odd take on the Suicide Squad, you know, sort of a situation that the Secret Six had become uh, pre Flashpoint. This is a totally different thing. And uh, this isn't a bad story by any means, but, uh, you know, I was coming in cold. I'm assuming a lot of people were coming in cold here. I, I don't know that you'd have any idea what any of this meant. Uh, If you look, I I did a bit of research here, and outside of an appearance in Crisis on Infinite Earths number 12, March 1986 cover, the Secret Six hadn't been seen since Secret Six number 7, which had a cover date of April-May 1969. So I mean, it's almost 20 years ago, and they only had seven appearances. So this is a very obscure property, or it was a very obscure property. I mean, even... Looking stuff up with the DC Wikia at my side was a bit uh, was a bit daunting, and you know I, I don't think we had a DC Wikia back in 1988, so I don't know how easy this would have been to uh, to really latch onto and have any kind of investment in. Um, the story itself was a little tough to follow. Uh, the panel layout is a little bit all over the place, and you know. 
you just you just don't know who these people are, and you don't know why they're important. Like if if I see the name August Durant and I can't Google or August Durant, I don't have any idea who I'm looking at. You know, again, if we're if we're reading this with the hindsight that we have built over the past several months, then sure, these people are all kind of old hat to us now, and we know the direction the story is going, and we know that Technodyne will loom large the entire time through. So it's, it, you know, it's kind of, uh, it rewards you for being a loyal reader, but at the same time, it's like you gotta be so tall to ride the ride, you know? And uh, I think a lot of us came in a little short because... I mean, who are these people, right? Now, I do like the idea of the new Secret Six being comprised of folks with disabilities because, and this spoils a little bit further on, Mockingbird will give them gifts that kind of, uh, that undo their disabilities. So the Vela who's blind will be getting, you know, a, a face mask that allows him to see. Uh, a guy who has bad arthritis in his hands will get, you know, some sort of a manacle that'll help him work with his hands again. Fellet in a wheelchair is going to get cybernetics put onto his legs so he can walk again. The deaf guy is going to be able to hear again. And they're all going to be beholden to Mockingbird. So they all have to act in Mockingbird's best interest, or they go back to being disabled. They go back to their, you know, their new normal, or their old normal, I guess. So it's very cool, uh... A dynamic uh, that this uh, team is is going to have to act in Mockingbird's best interest, whether it's on the level or not, and whether they're comfortable or not, just in order to keep their uh, their abilities, which I think that's pretty cool. Uh, not that cool. Let's hop into the next story, which is our Superman feature, and this is uh, this is one I've been taking a task for time and again uh, for just not getting it. Uh, this is a two-page feature written in the spirit of the Sunday newspaper strip, which I have a hard time looking at as its own thing. I, I'm comparing it to the other features in the book, which is kind of like, you know, comparing apples to elephants, you know? They're two different animals, they're two different beasts, and uh, or two different things altogether. But I hold it to the same standard since it's... Here and since I've dedicated an entire day to it, uh, which is my fault, you know, it's uh, it's my own projection. It's not uh, any kind of weakness with the story, even though the story does tend to be a bit weak in my opinion. Let's look at this one here. It's two pages, and we open with Clark Kent stood atop the Daily Planet building, enjoying both the view and a beverage. Among the voices he to- he tunes into, he hears a man crying out for help. Clark soups up and heads down to see what's up. And that's it. That's the entire story. Uh, (laughs) And I've mentioned that I I have uh, weird feelings and pangs of guilt. And uh, this this day, (laughs) the the Superman day, I feel so guilty for not providing uh, enough for the readers of uh, ChrisSunInfiniteArts.com. I feel like I'm really just taking a day off and... Instead of just enjoying it for what it is, I feel really bad about it. And I try to make it more than it is, which really only leads to me talking myself into circles and complaining an awful lot that this story isn't exactly what I wanted it to be. Um, Suffice it to say, I don't get it. I don't like it. It's not my thing. I understand why people would like it. It's great to see Kurt Swan draw a uh, post-crisis 
Superman, uh, you know, you don't get a whole lot to sink your teeth into here. Uh, you know, every story's got to start somewhere, and I guess this is where this story starts. Uh, you know, not to not to put the cart ahead of the horse here, but uh, this has been a slog ever since. I mean, we're up to issue 628 on the blog right now, so we've done 28 of these two-page stories, and I think we're later on the same day. You know, <laughs> it really just hasn't hasn't moved. Um, just not my thing. Not my thing. Uh, I'm going to try to present it as even-handedly as possible and leave uh, whatever kind of preconceptions I have out of it going forward because I have really let myself go loose on this thing. But, uh, eh, it is what it is. Speaking of which, Dead Man. Now, we open with Dead Man stood atop a satellite somewhere between the Earth and the Moon. His mission at present is to track down this 278 criminals who had escaped from Nanda Parbat. And I'm already bored. Uh, <laughs> this is like reading an Iron Fist story and seeing mention of Kun Lun. It's just so dull. Anywho, he heads toward Earth and he intercepts an airplane in the middle of a guns for drugs operation. The pilot and co-pilot are speaking in somewhat hushed tones as to not wake the section chief who we're going to meet in just a moment. Deadman heads for the back to check in on the chief, and he finds her wide awake. A bit about a gun for, guns for drugs for context, uh, because the story itself is kind of light on that, and, uh, I mean, we are a quarter century removed, so it's easy to get lost in this. Um, now, during the 1980s, the CIA was allegedly involved in trading weapons for cocaine. This was pretty timely when this story was writ- written, and uh, I could link to Wikipedia for more about it, or you could just search for it. It's not too hard to find. Anywho, Deadman wakes up face-to-face with the chief, who looks like she's checking the sight on her rifle. The plane eventually lands on a small strip in Belize. The section chief introduces herself to some locals, and we find out that her name is Major Grace Casaba. The Central Americans are a bit disappointed that Ronald Reagan himself didn't show up, but what are you going to do? I I guess I would be disappointed as well. You know, you, you expect the president, and you get Major Casaba. Uh, Together, they head into the jungle toward a Mayan temple to do the thing. Kasaba and company run into an archaeologist who isn't keen to the idea that they're here. He's afraid that they'll wind up vandalizing the priceless ruins, and, uh, you know, he's probably right to feel that way. This is, after all, kind of a war zone. At this point, Deadman remembers that this whole thing was a trade of weapons for drugs, and he decides to head back to the plane for some hocus-pocus. Deadman takes control of the pilot of the rig and, uh, gets this, he calls into Dade International Airport in Florida to tell them to expect a plane full of cocaine. They think it's a gag, but he assures them that he is not kidding around. Deadman takes out the co-pilot, then diverts course from the clandestine airstrip in the Everglades into Miami-Dade Airport. Uh, we take a look at the, uh, symbols here. They, they disguise cursing with symbols in this, because uh, one of the guys gets kind of angry and, and curses, and uh, like a what the is going on here, and one of the symbols is actually a swastika. I, I don't think I've ever used this, I've ever seen a swastika used as uh, as, you know, ampersand speak in, in comics cursing. It's uh, weird. With this part of the gig done and buried, Deadman returns to the Mayan temple to check in on Major Kasaba. And get this, as he approaches her, it seems as though she can see him. I kind of get a bad rap around these parts as uh, being a uh, Deadman hater. Uh, and uh, 
in fairness, it's it's kind of true. I, I I don't so much hate the character as much as I hate the stories that he's in. Uh, I think as a character, he's pretty cool, but everything winds up being a little samey, you know? Takes over a body, and that's about it. Uh, it seems like he can kind of magic himself out of any kind of situation, so there's really no writing Dead Man into a corner. Uh, it also... It also feels like every time we get a cliffhanger with Dead Man, it's that somebody can see him. I, I feel like we've read several of those uh, this past this past uh, you know Action Comics Daily <laughs> endeavor here, where people can see him. Even the uh, even the Christmas uh, break we took with uh, with Kara, you know, she could see him. It, it's just it feels like the law of diminishing returns, you know, where. If uh, if one person can see him, that's something. But if every other person can see him, it's just okay enough. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I am happy to be reading an '80s Dead Man thing here, just just to experience it. Um, the only time Dead Man really kind of resonated with me was during Brightest Day, and uh, that's when he wasn't dead. So you know, what are you gonna do? Now, what do we think about this story? wasn't half bad. I had a pretty pretty neat cliffhanger for the time. Uh, I was a bit trepidatious going into this about some poten- potential uh, political hand wringing that we might be seeing here. Uh, I, I, you know, they mentioned Reagan, and Reagan does make an appearance later on, and it's kind of, uh, eh, you know, it, it's pretty much exactly what you'd expect it to be. Um, the folks at DC didn't seem to be the biggest fans of the Reagan administration, and. Uh, I mean, you look at Millennium, Nancy Reagan's a manhunter, and ugh, all that stuff. Just feels like it's being more written for inter-office high-fives than to actually tell a good story. You know, what are you gonna do? Overall, I didn't disenjoy this. <laughs> I thought it was pretty good. And uh, I was hoping, going into this, that the character would grow on me, and uh, he probably did. You know, we are actually, as we stand now at the blog, we're done with Dead Man. We've done all of his arcs, and... Uh, We'll never see him again on the blog. Uh, and I think over the weeks and months, I have grown to have a bit of an appreciation for him that I didn't have before. I really like the Dan Jurgens art here. Uh, I feel like Dan's a good fit for the character. Uh, the second arc would have Kelly Jones on art, which is also, a, it's a radically different, but still a really good take for the character and a very good fit. And uh, leaving this chapter, I initially, to, to break out a, a chestnut I've been using a lot on the site, I, I, I said I was cautiously optimistic. And, uh, I mean, that's as good as any, I guess, right? Uh, let's wrap it up with Blackhawk. Now, we open in flashback land, and it's VJ, Victory Over Japan Day, which was September 2nd, 1945. American streets are filled with celebration in Ballyhoo following the unconditional surrender by Japan. American soldiers returned home, they reunited with their loved ones, and uh, in the words of one guy, they pretended that real life wasn't, quote, boring as hell. Now that boredom would be short-lived, however, as just a year later there was some goings-on in Vietnam that required their attention. Fed up with French rule, the Viet Minh started a revolution. Battles raged during the winter of 1946-1947, and this brings us to the quote-unquote now, because this story takes place in February 1947, where Janice Prohaska, Blackhawk, is taking a bath in a Singaporean cat house uh, while reading the funnies in Stars and Stripes. 
He's rather displeased to learn that Milton Caniff has left Terry and the Pirates to start Steve Canyon. And uh, that's actually a whole move that Reggie and I talked about briefly on a uh, episode of Cosmic Treadmill After Dark for uh, the patrons out there. Suddenly, the door is kicked in by a man named Zalecki. He's ticked off and he's wielding a blade while demanding $10,000, which is about $112,604 in today's dollars. Uh, Meanwhile, downstairs, a blonde woman arrives at the cat house and uh, get this, she's looking for Blackhawk too. Back upstairs, Blackhawk pulls the old you-brought-a-knife-to-a-gunfight thing and shoots Zalecki right in the gut. Our mystery blonde hears the gunshot and might might now know exactly where to find her fella. And that's that. I I really enjoyed this one. I like this one a lot. Uh, I really had zero experience with Blackhawk outside of the, uh, I think, one read of the Howard Chaikin prestige format deal uh, that that came out, uh, I think, a little bit before this. I don't know a whole lot about Blackhawk, and even then, I'd read that prestige format thing well over a decade ago. So I, I wasn't sure what to expect going in here. And I think going into the Action Comics Daily thing, Black Hawk was the book or the feature that most intimidated me because I just didn't think I'd have much of a frame of reference for it. And I and I didn't have a frame of reference for it, but turns out I really didn't need one either. And actually, if I were to think about it more, the only Black Hawk I really have any familiarity with would be Lady Black Hawk, who showed up in Birds of Prey. But <laughs> that doesn't really help me here. Now, one thing I wanted to touch on, it's interesting that how much something like time removed, you know, makes actual real-world history more acceptable to me as a storytelling device. If we jump back to the Dead Man feature, they mentioned the Iran-Contra stuff, some Reagan stuff, and I had trouble connecting with that. But not so much with the, you know, the VJ day and the surrender. It's it's weird. I don't know if maybe it's just time removed or... Or what? It, it, it reminds me of when I read All-Star Squadron and I see them check in with uh, FDR. You know, I can accept that. And I actually feel like it adds to the lore of the story. It brings you, it puts you into the gestalt of when the story's taking place. But I, I hate to see, like, if the Justice League or Avengers were to confer with, uh, with either of the Bushes or Obama or Trump. I, I just don't like that. I think it's, maybe it's too fresh. Maybe it's too soon. I, I don't know. Um, maybe I just trust Mike Grell to tell, to tell a better story than others might. I don't know. Um, now what we get here, we don't get all that much. Uh, Blackhawk himself only shows up in the latter half, though I do appreciate the table setting that we get in the lead-up, you know, letting us know exactly where we are and what we're dealing with insofar as, uh, wartime, peacetime. Blackhawk is t- depicted here as a prototypical action hero. He spouts off cliche lines about, you brought a knife to a gunfight, you know. This stuff that I I would usually roll my eyes about, but I don't know, here it kind of works. I kind of like it. Uh, Overall, at first blush, like I mentioned, this this arc, feature, whatever, really, I was really trepidatious going in. I didn't think I was going to like it. I thought it was going to be the, you know, put your head down and, and power through because I thought it was just going to be so dull, but I was rather captivated. Um, and again, to put the cart in front of the horse here, Blackhawk has turned into a top three Action Comics Weekly feature for me. Overall, I've enjoyed it so much. 
Uh, even Mar- Martin Pascoe comes in for the second and third arcs, uh, and they're they're just as solid as this Grill one. It's a lot of fun, and I was uh, very excited to continue. And I, and even as we sit here now talking about it, I'm excited to uh, to go into the third arc that we're about to go into on the uh, on the blog. It's just a real fun feature. Uh, if you were to read one story out of this book, uh, you know there, there there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting stuff. You know, um, as we stand now, 28 issues in on the blog, it's kind of a lull period in Action Comics Weekly. A lot of uh, treading water. You can tell that the priority has kind of dipped a bit at DC Editorial. We're starting out here. We kind of we kind of hit the ground running. We have a very very strong Green Lantern uh, chapter. This Black Hawk chapter is great. I think it's a lot of uh, very interesting table setting and uh, very diverse line of features. And I'm, I was sitting here thinking if I had to if I had to recommend one, I, I don't know that I could. I could tell you not to bother with the Superman feature. I could tell you that much, but. Uh, Everything else, I think, is uh, is solid to good and uh, well worth checking out, at least for this first one, just to get uh, you know a taste for it. Of course, you can just uh, check it out at the blog. A lot of these stories have been reviewed uh, or featured three times on the blog at this point. Uh, their individual chapter, uh, the compilation, and also the uh, compilation of the Action Comics Weekly Preview Edition. It was a special black-and-white edition that was sent out to retailers. We've, we've touched on it before during very, very early installments of the Hot Take, where uh, folks were getting these advanced copies of the black-and-white photostats. I actually came into possession of one myself, and uh, it's one of my you know, treasured uh, uh, collection pieces uh, right now. I also have the in-store display, the mobile display... Of uh, for Action Comics Weekly that was hang- that would hang in comic book stores back in 1988. My good pal Dave hooked me up with that. It's got uh, the Action Comics Weekly logo and it's got little dangling, uh, you know, discs, uh, each featuring one of the uh, features. You got a Wild Dog, you know, Dead Man. Uh, I like our Dead Man logo better than the one they use there. The one that we use at the site is a lot uh, cleaner, I think. But. Uh, these have become very, very treasured pieces of my, uh, of just my museum of uh, comics ephemera, and uh, I've really come to appreciate this Action Comics Weekly experiment, and uh, I'm just so pleased that I actually have stuck through it as long as I have, or stuck with it as long as I have, and I hope that uh, maybe this might inspire some folks who have been you know, dismissing the blog as just being <laughs> about one title now. Maybe give it a look. Maybe see if, uh, I mean, there is something for everybody in Action Comics Weekly. At least that was the plan. So uh, if you're interested, definitely uh, give it a look. I'm gonna, I'll am gonna link to uh, a few th- a few key uh, chapters in the show notes if you're interested in checking out. Um, since we've already done the uh, synopsis and analysis, I guess we could uh, hop to the horns and then go right into the hot take. Alrighty, for last week's hot take, we did something pretty uncharacteristic for the blog. We looked at the letters page from an issue of X-Force. It was around the time where the new-look X-Force, that would ultimately become the X-Statics, uh, was introduced. Uh, I was hoping to get a little bit of feedback on that, uh, but uh, didn't get any. <laughs> so, uh, you know, what's that definition of insanity? Uh, do the same thing, t- the same thing twice, expecting a different result. So uh, we're going to continue 
with the X-Force uh, exclamations here. We're going to look at the letters page from issue 118 of X-Force. And this will feature the first actual letters responding to the new look. Last week we talked about strictly hot takes. This is just people reacting to the news and some promotional images. This one's actually people who read issue 116 where the big changes went down. Now, our first letter comes from Paul via the internet. He says, Dear Peter and Mike, with one fell swoop, you've changed my comic buying habits. Until your takeover of X-Force, I had never bought an issue with a title. Yet, after reading just your first issue, X-Force is already at the top of my comics buying list. Exit Wounds was thoroughly fresh, bracing, engaging, and riveting. Congratulations. To which our editor uh, or assistant, we have a... John Masagis and Axel Alonzo, our editorial team here. I'm not sure which one's answering the letters. Uh, we'll say it's Axel because Axel's easier to say than Masagis. Uh, he says, thanks, Paul, and join the club. There are a lot of folks like yourself who made X-Force 116 their first X-title. And it's true, the X-Men books have had a, a connotation throughout the 90s uh, as being... Almost an illustration of uh, just the direction of the comics market. And uh, I remember even buying X-Men books at the shops and, and the people behind the counter would kind of roll their eyes, you know, because it wasn't something dark and vertigo-y. You know, they thought it was just uh, garbage. And I mean, they, they weren't completely wrong. Some of it is was pretty rough. But uh, this, uh, this change here, I think, definitely brought some new eyes to the X-Universe and... Uh, you know, hopefully helped to uh, broaden some people's horizons. Uh, uh, folks who were just X-Men fans, kind of like myself, were, you know, predominantly X-Men fans. This was a whole whole new thing for, uh, for folks like me. So, uh, pretty great stuff. Our next letter comes from Stephen via the internet. Dear Marvel, I picked up X-Force 116 and I was totally blown away. Until now, I had picked up maybe two issues of the title considering you were pretty much coming in on a story in the middle of a story, since apparently this X-Force has been around a while, I was sucked into the story. If this is what you get when you don't get your comics code approved, I can't wait to see what you do with the other books. You were actually interested in... I was, ac I was actually interested in all the characters, of course. Having most of them blown away at the end was shocking, but Peter did a great job of getting a feeling for the characters in just one short story. Keep up the great work. Now, the thing about X-Force 116, and if you haven't read it, I apologize for spoiling it for you, we're introduced to a whole new X-Force team, and all but, like, one or two of them die in that very same issue. So the rest of this run is them putting together a new team. So it's a third team, kind of. If you, if you go from, like, the if you consider the Cannonball, Boomer, and Richter team as one, you have this one team, two, who shows up in issue 116, and then team three is 117 and onward. Go to our editorial reply. It says, Thanks, Stephen. This issue's bloody finale was meant to illustrate the high-stakes world that our characters live in. Peter and Mike wanted to put readers on warning to announce that in this book, no one is safe. Perhaps not even Dupe. Well, I think Dupe is the only one that's uh, <laughs> that was safe. But uh, uh, his point is well taken. This is uh, a totally new... Uh, Totally new dynamic for, for an X-Team, you know, where people, where characters were just interchangeable. They could die. And uh, 
and Peter Milligan, uh, he's, he's, he's a, he's a wonderful writer. Um, you're introduced to these people that you don't even know and you still have an affinity for them. You still care about them. So even when they're wiped out in an issue, you have feelings about a character. You might've hated the character for being kind of vapid, or you might've really just liked the character because they related to you in sort of a way. But, you know, the fact remained that you felt loss with, uh, with this death of characters you knew less than an issue. And I think that's a, definitely a testament to uh, Milligan's uh, ability to write. Our next letter comes from Joseph in Los Angeles. Exclamations, what can I say? I haven't read an X-Title since Uncanny X-Men number 201 back in 1989 or so. And I admit that I had no inclination to do so ever again. And then... And then came along the new X-Force. I admit I picked up X-Force 116 pretty much exclusively for the Mike Allred artwork. I'm simply fascinated by his character designs and panel work. And issue 116 certainly fit that bill to a T. I would point to pages 10 through 13 for understated yet dramatic artwork, hearkening back in some regards to classic romance comic art. And with the same skill of the pen, we have page 20 and its EC Comics flair for the destruction of the human body. Frightening, grotesque, and beautiful. Yes, it's a very gory death scene at the very end of that issue. So uh, I'm sure it's easy to find online if you wanted to uh, search it up. He continues, And Peter Milligan's writing? Amazing! It kept me intrigued from page 1, a glimpse of a dream, a nightmare and fantasy, and followed onward with its premise of the same. I was reminded of a line from Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, We live as we dream, alone. This becomes painfully true for the entire issue as we glimpse the lives of these fractured individuals. The quick and deft characterizations of Zeitgeist, You Go Girl, and The Anarchist are perfectly delineated in a good story. We know these people. We know their lives. We know their dreams. Pages 10 through 13 stick out for their view of the dark dreams inhabiting the world of the X-Force team. A world of the self and only the self. The great romance of the restaurant sequence is nicely counterpointed by the sharp, dark dialogue. And despite the maddening crowd, the glistening movie cameras we see even as they dream and live alone, so so too do these X-Force team members die alone, alone in their dreams. And the denouement... Let's just say I'm waiting with bated breath for the next issue. Maybe a little purple there from Joseph. (laughs) But, uh, again, his point is well taken. These characters were fleshed out right out the gate. And uh, you really felt for them. You felt, uh, I think, uh, Zeke Geist... I think You Go Girl and The Anarchist are the only ones that survived that issue. Zeke Geist was the leader, and he he was brutally uh, dismembered, and, and he died at the end. Our editor says, glad to have you on board, Joseph, and uh, very good. Our next letter comes from Brandon via the internet. He says, X-Force 116 was a wake-up call, an indication that Joe Quesada has truly ushered in a new age of creativity and experimentation at the House of Ideas. It occurred to me while midway through the book that I had never seen anything like this from Marvel. The concept was fresh and progressive, and Allred's art was something I had never I never would have considered on an X-book, though it worked perfectly to complement Milligan's script. Heroes as Celebrities is the next logical step in the maturation of the concept of superheroes, and Milligan's first script only hints at the possibilities and gets my mouth watering for more. X-Force was a sign that things are indeed changing within Marvel, but it, also, it was also a signal to work faster. 
Think, thanks for delivering a satisfying read and making a hopeful reader hear the quickening approach of footsteps. And, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to discount the, uh, the early Jemis and Casada Marvel as, you know, as just like the ultimate books and not much else, but there was really a feeling of electricity and excitement in the air. Uh, as a Marvel zombie of the day, it was a very exciting time to be a comic book fan. Um, this was just a blast. Every week was an event, and uh, I don't think I've experienced anything like that since because you just didn't know. And the the announcements coming out were just things you would never imagine. And and it was, I know I mentioned, I know I, know I overuse the term funny haha, but like now it's like we've got like a scroll sitcom comic. It's like okay, I get it, haha. It's it's so bad, it's good, but back then. You had these like kind of oddball takes on things, and it was exciting because it was just so, so different from what you'd expect from Marvel or DC, uh, especially you know the mainstream Marvel and DC, not not counting things like Vertigo, and uh, it was just very very exciting times. And every single week and every edition of previews was something special because you just didn't know what you were gonna get. It's a lot of fun, and I, those are times I miss a lot. Our next letter comes from John in Spain. He says, Okay, first thing, this new X-Force. No, it's not a good thing. Not at all. You killed off the coolest characters in comics. They were the reasons I continue to buy X-Force. Because they took no crap from anyone. They were badass. And to replace them with this new bunch is an atrocity. You should be ashamed of yourselves for even thinking of giving this new bunch the name X-Force. I know I'm ashamed of all of you. You really disappointed me. You should have left well enough alone. And if the original X-Force, the Great Ones, really did die, and we all know that no one really ever dies in the Marvel Universe, but if they did, you should have just ended the title there and not given a name that was earned by the old ones to this new group. I'm sorry to say that I will not be buying any more X-Force. The only good thing about this episode is the Wolverine cameo. At least you have the old group come back and kick these posers' butts for taking their name. This almost feels like a parody letter, doesn't it? It's like almost satirical, badass, with two Zs. It's almost like uh, Vince Russo wrote it or something, but uh, two Ds and two Zs. It's pretty ridiculous. Maybe you wanted to trademark it. Um, I don't know. This just seems like a... <laughs> This almost feels like a straw man letter. Let's see how Axel handles him here. He says, Sorry the new team's not to your liking, John. At the very least, last issue's knockdown drag-out brawl shows that most of the characters you'd assume dead are, in fact, alive and kicking. Who knows where they'll surface in the future? Or Wolverine, for that matter. Well, if John knew that they were, most of them were going to surface uh, as part of Banshee's sort of kind of Nazi team, uh, they pro- probably wouldn't be too pleased. But, uh, you know, I'll hand it to the editor here. They didn't, they didn't, uh, you know, burn the straw man here. You know, they apologized that it wasn't to their liking and uh, suggested maybe they try again sometime down the line. You know, maybe, maybe our paths will cross again. And they didn't outright mock him or dismiss him like I fear a lot of, uh, a lot of the uh, mainstream comics uh, editorial teams would do today. Next letter comes from Oval via the internet. Dear Exclamations, Of all the Marvel relaunches and reinvent- reinventions over the last year or two, 
X-Force 116 is the boldest so far. Firstly, the reconceptualizing and recasting of the team. One of my reservations over what has been happening at Marvel recently is what seems to be a strong preference toward established characters. As much as I enjoy Spider-Man and the X-Men, it's encouraging to see the publisher also creating new characters and investing in their future. Secondly, the creative team. I've been following Milligan's work since his days on 2000 AD and Strange Days. I've always felt that two-thirds of his work is staggering and one-tenth complete crap. Okay. As it happens, X-Force falls well into the two-thirds category. I've always liked All Red's artwork. It's more in keeping with pop work of artists like Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko. But given the elaborate styles of artwork which populate most mainstream titles today, I never imagined him working regularly on a Marvel comic, let alone one with such a high profile as this. I don't know which characters populated X-Force before, and really, I don't care. The challenging morality, motivation, and relationships of the new cast make them utterly compelling. Only Milligan and Allred would have the ability to introduce these characters so successfully and then have over half of them apparently slaughtered at the end. And it's a credit to the new Marvel that it has wisely given these two creative forces the space to do their funky stuff. And uh, Oval, you hit it on the head there. It's exactly what I said here a few times already, that these characters were captivating enough to make you care and make you feel lost when they were, uh, as uh, as Oval put it here, slaughtered, because I, slaughtered is probably the perfect word for it. Uh, and you didn't know what the characters were before, uh, and that's quite all right, because Counter-X, like I said last week, Counter-X X-Force sucked. Uh, the editor replies with, Thanks, Oval. If you're a fan of Peter's work, you might want to check out his two-part story starting in Tangled Web Number 5 out this month. It's called Flowers for Rhino. It's illustrated by his frequent collaborator, Duncan Figretto, and it's a blast. If you're a fan of Mike's work, rush out and check out his Madman or Atomics comics. Mike was doing his funky stuff a long time before he came to this title. And it's weird to have them uh, shout out <laughs> his uh, independent work. That's That's pretty cool of them to do. It's... It just uh, Comics just felt like the Wild West back then, right? Uh, Tangled Web was a uh, Spider-Man anthology series which was supposed to take the place of any uh, miniseries. Uh, they wanted to step away from doing miniseries for a bit. At least that's kind of how Bill Jemis framed it, where uh, I guess every miniseries would have just shown up as an issue of Tangled Web. And uh, Flowers for Rhino is a take on Flowers for Algernon, obviously, or almost obviously, I guess. Um, of course, that didn't stop them from releasing a whole bunch of Spider-Man miniseries, and Tangled Web didn't last terribly long. I think it's best known for a particularly uh, good uh, Greg Rucka story. Um, I think it was called Severance Package. It was about a guy who quit working for the Kingpin. It's it's a good story. I, I don't want to ruin it, but it's, a, it's one that I would recommend checking out. Now, our penultimate letter comes from Eric via the Internet. He says, Axel, I know that some people really loathed the new direction on X-Force, but for what it's worth, I thought it was awesome. The concept was interesting, and Mike Allred's work was simply great. Someone needs to make sure that he continues to get mainstream exposure. One suggestion, however, perhaps in the future, most team members could survive a bit longer than one issue. The early death of all but two members was unemotional, though though unexpected and slightly funny. Zietgeist... Named with a certain editor in mind, question mark, deserved at least two or three more issues. I don't know who Zietgeist would uh, be in reference to. I, 
I, I think I might be reading into things a little much, but uh, I, I think uh, I don't really agree with Eric here. I think that I think that to, to get the most punch out of a out of an inaugural chapter of a new take. I think if you were to keep Zeitgeist around for two or three issues, or even the other members of the team, and then kill them off, I don't think it would have had the the impact. Kind of like we have here in Action Comics Weekly, where Cat Matui is killed, you know, six pages in. Yeah, I think that's the kind of impact you need to establish that you are doing something different. And uh, that's exactly what they did here with X-Force. Now, our final letter is from Randy via the internet. It, it feels like you lose something when there's no cities and states anymore. <laughs> when they're all via the internet, it's kind of, uh, eh, it's not as fun. He says, Dear editors, X-Force 116 was weird. I can't say good, but I can't say bad. So weird. It's great that you killed off characters because it shows you're not afraid to mess with people's minds. But I also think you shouldn't have killed them because how do you develop characters if they're dead? Either way, the series is great and I can't wait to see what happens next. So yeah, the uh, the slaughter scene at the end of 116, uh, almost as contentious as replacing the characters uh, from you know, the, the previous run. It's... Uh, a lot of different op- differing opinions on that, and uh, I could see points for both sides. Uh, I I do fall on the side, obviously, of kill him <laughs> because I think that was the most impactful way to end that issue. And it really, uh, I remember the first time I read it, and you know, you it you, it, it sticks with you, you know, because you're introduced to these new characters, they build these characters up, and then dead. So you're just sitting there with this weird emptiness. And you're almost nostalgic for adventures that these characters had that you never saw. You know, we never saw or had them even alluded to. And yet we missed them. You know, we felt nostalgic for for these uh, adventures that we never saw. It's I think it was very well done. And uh, these characters were, some of these characters were meant to just be vapid celebrity superheroes. And you really don't need to build much more of a character into that. Because you run the risk of making them relatable and likable, and I don't think that was ever the intention for a character like Zeitgeist. I think that that was supposed to just be a, this is the new guy in charge, and he's kind of a jerk. (laughs) And now he's dead. So, there you go. But that'll do it for this week's Hot Take, and we will move into our final stages, and I will finally let you go on with the rest of your day. Now, I was going to do a little bit of feedback here, but... My Twitter updated. Uh, I don't know if you guys' Twitter is updated uh, yet, but it's very hard to find anything on there now. I I don't know what it is. I I can't find old tweets. I'm trying to work my way through, and I'm seeing all sort of weird stuff. And uh, So I'm going to try to do some stuff from memory, uh, (laughs) mostly relating to uh, the fact that a lot of folks seem to really dig the idea of Strike Force Moritori. Last week, we discussed... Mostly discuss Strike Force Moritori as I painfully tried to compare it to uh, accepting a temporary job, um, and I think that might have captured the idea of Strike Force Moritori in and of itself might have captured some folks' attention or imagination, and uh, I, I think it inspired some folks to to actually seek it out, and uh, I'm happy about that. That was the point. I was hoping that people would want to check out Strike Force Moritori. Uh, I also did put a little bit of a plea in the last episode that if anybody wanted to uh, maybe discuss Strike Force Moratory with me, uh, let me know. <laughs> and uh, that has been p- 
picked up. So I don't want to say I don't want to say anything solid or firm, but uh, probably in the next couple months uh, there'll be some Strike Force Moratory content here on the Chris and Reggie channel. Um, I also did receive a question about uh, from Claremont to Claremont, which is something I mentioned in brief. Uh, which I should probably put into context. Um, From Claremont to Claremont was going to be my original comic book podcast. And uh, for folks into the comics podcast bubble, you'll know that there is a program called From Crisis to Crisis. It's a Superman podcast hosted by uh, Mike Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor. It's a great show. It's a, unfortunately it's one of the shows that I really, I really dove deep on and, uh, I got burnt out on it because I just listened. I just took in so much of it at once uh, when I was on the road. Uh, very, a very fun walkthrough of the uh, in-between crises era of Superman. You know, from Crisis on Infinite Earths all the way up to uh, Infinite Crisis. Uh, last I listened, they were probably around 1994, 1995. Uh, it's one of those shows I, I gotta, I gotta get back into, but one I need a running start for because I am quite far behind at this point. But. Uh, a great show, and uh, and and I loved that it um, focused in on a particular era and take on a character that uh, both the hosts were very passionate about. Uh, passion is something that I feel is very very important in in podcasting. No matter what the subject, you have to actually care about what you're talking about, and it has to come across as though you care about what you're talking about. And these two very very most definitely do care about this era of Superman. And as a wannabe podcaster of the day, I really tried to figure out wh- where would I where would I fall if I were to do a podcast. And uh, one run that I am especially passionate about is the post Chris Claremont run on X Men. So basically, all the '90s stuff, uh, the stuff that brought me to the dance, kinda. And I thought that it would be fun to do a show called From Claremont to Claremont, which would cover. After Claremont leaves, after X-Men Volume 2, Number 3, all the way up to uh, Claremont's return in X-Men Volume 2, Number 100. You know, that whole chunk of X-Men is my bread and butter. So I thought it would be a lot of fun to take that apart and uh, and just really go deep uh, on something I'm very passionate about. It never really came to pass. Um, you never know. I, 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 I talk like I have all the free time in the world, which I don't, but... Uh, it would be a fun thing to do, uh, a from Claremont to Claremont uh, sort of a situation, but uh, I'm happy doing what I'm doing now, and uh, you never know. Maybe there'll be uh, one-offs, or you never know. <laughs> they say never say never, because uh, never means never. Uh, but the, I, I, like I said, I can't find a whole lot on Twitter, but I, I do know that a lot of the uh, a lot of the reactions were very good to the last episode. I just... I just need to be more vigilant about doing screen grabs, I guess, because I can't find anything on this thing anymore. Uh, but I do want to thank everyone for checking that out. Uh, if you are checking out Strike Force Moritori, uh, you're in for a heck of a ride, at least for the first, you know, 18, 20 issues or so. But uh, you're gonna, you're in for a good time. It is, as far as I know, it is on the Marvel app. So if you do have that, you, you should be able to find it. Uh, it has been collected in trade if you can't find the single issues, because those single issues, they are tough to find. Um, at least at least a decent run of them. If you want issue one, I, I, I can I can give you as many of those as you want. But, uh, 
But uh, I, I want to thank everyone for checking out last week and uh, for for hitting me up uh, on social media and uh, on the blog. I, I appreciate that more than you guys know. It, it means the world to me that uh, that folks are getting something out of this uh, as much as I am. Because I, I am really enjoying this uh, creative outlet or blabbering outlet, whatever you want to call it. But that'll do it for this week. If uh, you would like to uh, write into the blabbling, blabbering outlet, uh, you could do so at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can check out the website at weird... Uh, no, it's not at weirdcomicshistory anymore. It's at chrisandreggie.com. We have the old .com. I keep forgetting. Uh, you can check us out there. You can check us out at all the places where noise is. Uh, you can reach us on Twitter at Cosmic T-Mill, at Reggie Reggie, and at Ace Comics. If you want to check out the site that this show is named after and the site that has been taken over by Action Comics Weekly, you can do so at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. If, while you're there, you find something you'd like to hear me talk about, let me know and I will put it on the list. If, also, while you're there, you see something that you'd like to talk about, let me know and we will see what we can work out. I'm trying to become better about having guests on. I am notoriously poor about following up with guests, but I am doing my best to, to make sure I'm not leaving people uh, in the lurch. So uh, expect some guests uh, coming up soon. Um, I think that'll do it. I think I've taken up enough of your day. Thank you so, so much for listening, especially if you made it this far. I had a really good time visiting. So long for now. See you. <laughs>